In this latest episode of the TWBC podcast, we talk to women's masters jump champion Laura Morgan. We find out more about her achievements on the water and those off the water in this, the next episode of the TWBC podcast. The expressed views of the guests on this podcast are theirs alone and not necessarily endorsed by the host, TWBC, or any associated sponsor. Conversations that are robust yet balanced, on point and to the point. You're listening to The Talk of Tournament Water Skiing. This is the TWBC Podcast. And now, here's your host, Tony Lightfoot. Well, greetings one and all. I am the aforementioned Tony Lightfoot. This is the TWBC Podcast, and great to have you on board. Uh, and uh, coming to you from uh, from Tri-Lakes just a few days after the uh, the jump tournament that was LA Night Jam. And about three weeks uh, after the, the Masters Jump Tournament, which saw a brand new women's jump champion. And we get to talk to her right now, uh, Laura Morgan. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, it's been a good couple couple weeks of skiing for me. So I decided to stick around Bennett's for a couple more weeks before my next event. Okay, so uh, with that with that in mind, uh, tell us uh, t- tell us the events that led up to your uh, your victory there on Robin Lake. Yeah, well, um, as you know, we have the LCQs. Uh, there's three of those. I decided to skip out on the first one because I hadn't skied quite enough uh, right before that. So I decided to do my first one at uh, Winter Garden, Hancock, and I qualified in there. I didn't have the best two sets. Uh, My first set was actually pretty bad, and I went back to the drawing board, went home, um, made a game plan for the next day, qualified in the next day with a 173 jump, I believe. Um, and then I decided to also ski the following weekend at Jack's, and I went 180 feet. So started kind of climbing up into that point and starting, starting to get some really good jumps and practice and feeling more confident for Masters. And then um, I knew that, you know, the field once we get to Masters would be tough, but um, just kind of stuck to my game plan and, and really um, focused in that, that last week before before making it. So what there. was the major difference between the, the Winter Garden jumps and those at Jack's? Because, I mean, that, that was like a big shot in the arm for you an additional 10 feet when you over over 180 feet you know what what was what was going on to that led to you jumping 180 feet aside from the fact that you're hugely familiar with uh, with the site there at jacks yeah of course um you know at the lcq at hancock i was really focused on qualifying and doing a certain score um and really just not trying to do what i can do um which is jump into the 55 meter range um i know i can do it but at at that first uh, lcq i was kind of holding back just trying to do a score to make the make the cut and you know i let the lesson learned is never never hold back (laughs) absolutely and you certainly didn't hold back there at the masters but also going a little bit further back you got onto the podium at the world championships on the very same site and i mean you 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 said that i mean that was your first ever podium at the elite worlds wasn't that right yeah it was uh that was really exciting for me and something i trained for all last year uh, that was a goal, just get get on the podium, and, and I did it, and I, I couldn't be more excited about that still. All right, then. Just just give us an idea a little bit uh, uh, how your training sets go, because, I mean, I, I mean that's... That in that in some way gives us a little bit of a hint as to what as to what you're going to do out there out there on the water at any given time. So, uh, what what does a t- training set uh, consist of for you? Yeah, usually I do a lot of open cutting, a lot of drills. Um, I've been skiing a lot with Ryan Dodd the last couple of years, and and kind of implementing some things we've talked about. Um, more, you know, trying to not just go out there and jump 
full on every set tried to you know bring in some some different things where I'm lacking in technique to um you know if I'm doing it on drills then I can start to get into that rhythm when I go out there and actually jump and then when I do go and do my my jump sets um I I focus a lot more that way because I don't have as many jump sets to go over and I and honestly with with work and everything um the last couple years I haven't been able to ski a lot so Mm -hmm. when I do get to go out there I you know take full advantage of the jump set and, and don't take it for granted yeah, absolutely. Just making sure that, uh, that you get out there and maximize the use of the limited amount of time that you have to practice is certainly there. But is there is there anything that you do in the off season? I mean, I know you're in you're a tremendously good shape, you know, I mean, and and jumping more than any other event in the sport definitely has you, you have to be on your game physically in, or, in order to take these huge jumps and huge risks. Yeah, for sure. I think um, up until about two years ago, I was really focused on on lifting a lot, um, getting as strong as I could. This last this last off season was a little different because I had a lot of injuries coming off of last season. So I did a lot more mobility, a lot more rehab. Um, try to keep my weight down and um, try to stay light and, and springy. You know. Um, getting off the ramp is sort of my biggest setback um i don't have a problem generating speed um usually don't have a problem you know taking a late cut but i've always had an issue kind of getting off the ramp so this year i kind of went back took some steps to one you know rehab my body but then to um be lighter and have better plyometric skills so okay uh, okay that certainly certainly sounds good i mean we're watching jumping right now here at tri lakes i mean we're right we're right next to the lake and uh uh, you decided to uh, to stay here for uh, for a couple a uh, couple of weeks and uh, take a little bit of time off work. Uh, how, how's that gone so far? Yeah, it's good. I'm actually I work totally remote, so I can kind of work from anywhere. Um, so I'm not taking time off work, but um, you know I could have drove back to Florida and then back up this way towards Arkansas for the uh, Greenwoods tournament next weekend. But decided to just stick around. It would be easier to be able to train and then um, also be able to work from here. So. Excellent. Let's talk about your work, shall we? Uh, sure. You you are currently a researcher at the National Institute of Justice, which is uh, a kind of like a su- subsidiary of the uh, of the Department of Justice uh, at the federal level. Uh, tell us a little bit about about that position, and we'll also go back to kind of what inspired you to go into that field of work to start off with. Because I mean, that's an interesting story in itself. Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing my PhD, and I am pretty much everything but dissertation uh, right now, and so I'll, I'll defend my dissertation proposal in about a month. So, um, you know, that's where my, my inspiration to pursue this job at the NIJ kind of comes from. Um, I'm very interested in juvenile justice policy, uh, but also the child welfare system and foster care. So um, that's sort of my um, expertise. And um, the NIJ job sort of came up. They are sort of the, I think about them as sort of the um, the the agenda setters in the field for criminal justice. So, what are the key issues that we need to be focusing on this year in terms of research and policy? Um, and so, right now, I'm I'm going to be a research assistant for them. Um, working on anything that's pressing at the moment, um, you know, doing a lot of data analysis, a lot of literature reviews, um, really being a helper. And then once hopefully I get my PhD um, in about a year's time, I'll be able to move up to the research associate level. So, so you, so the big, the big time in Washington DC, I take it. huh? Yeah, exactly. All right then. So, I mean, what in, uh, so, I mean, 
what what kind of clicked for you initially? I mean, I mean, let, let's just let's just go back to the juniors when when you were when you were trying to pick out colleges and that kind yeah. of stuff. And what, what at what time did did things click for you in like saying this is this is the path I want to want to yeah. travel on? I want to deal with criminal with criminal justice victim uh, yeah. all, all that kind of stuff. So what? So when did that happen? Yeah, it happened about halfway through my college um, at Florida Southern. When I went to Florida Southern, I really just, you know, I didn't care too much about academics, to be honest. I wanted to just go and ski in college, and I wanted to stay in Florida. So that's how I picked the school. And then, um, you know, I got there and um, started, you know, taking. I took a bunch of different courses. I didn't have any uh, declared major or anything. And then I took a class on um, the criminalization of mental illness and started to understand that, you know, the criminal justice system really treats uh, people um, unjustly in different aspects of life, whether it be, you know, uh, mental health issues or race or gender, whatever it is. Um, and so that really interested me. And I and I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll pursue a master's degree in this. So then I moved to Seattle and did, did the master's. And then um, when I was working in my master's, I got a job working with the juvenile justice system. And then I decided, okay, maybe I want to do my PhD. So just kind of a compounding of events and um i never you know thought from the beginning oh i'll do a phd but you know step by step i thought you know if i'm still in school i can i can still ski and um i'm still able to do the job that i i like and as i was working in juvenile justice um, i wasn't skiing a whole lot at that time that was in seattle i was done with my master's and i started seeing some interesting um cycles happen with youth coming into the juvenile detention facility and going coming from foster care and I was just sort of interested in sort of what we call crossover youth those youth that are in both systems and so that really led me to Mm. want to do my PhD and that's what my dissertation's on so so yeah so yeah an interesting path I mean halfway halfway through your studies and you just and, and it only, only took one class yeah you know to to take <laughs> a down. class and a mentor I would say a class yeah. and a mentor so uh you, you, I mean, you're you're current you're currently working with juvenile justice, that kind of stuff. I mean, a lot of that kind of bleeds into to things that are happening on in in the world right now, especially where it comes to athletics and those and those who are in that setting vulnerable to to nef- to nefarious activity. I would say, and I mean, and I mean, this is half the reason why. Uh, why in recent times uh, safe sport has been mm. has been implemented uh, i mean vis-a-vis what you, what you're doing right now and how it relates to our sport i mean are you in a position to comment a little bit on on that and uh, why why you think it was necessary to put something like safe sport into place and and whether it's it's a good system or it's could be improved upon yeah, so actually my master's degree, I specialized in victimization um, and learned a lot about, you know, victims of abuse and um, sort of the walks of life that those youth come from. A lot of times it does happen when you're younger and then as you transition to adulthood, you continue to be abused. Um, it's sort of a cycle of trauma, um, a cycle of violence, whatever you want to call it. And so if we don't take action on these things when, when kids are, are young, um, we will see women being victimized later in life. And so... 
I do think it's important. I think it's important to bring awareness to those issues. Um, you know, I think there's other things we could do, not necessarily safe sport, but, you know, um, other other things, you know, just parents can do to prep their, their kids for, um, you know, different settings that you could be victimized in. Um, simple things that are, you know, in, in some ways um, one would think um, kind of, you know, not... I, I guess just like something that you'd think that everyone would kind of already know, um, but they often don't. And if you don't talk about it, then it, it goes, um, you know, undetected a lot of times. Yeah, because I mean, I find as well, and I mean, I'm a substitute teacher, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, in West Baton Rouge Parish, and I see that that a lot of the kids' behaviours, you know, and 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 I like think to myself, I mean. Do, do these kids even have parents or that kind of support system that that, that helped them along you know at that at that yeah. stage I, I, I kind of wondered that and it, and the situation with with the, with those adverse behaviors in, in a lot of those settings just gets worse and worse and worse because yeah. the the, uh, the the parents for in a lot of instances have just absolve their responsibilities you know and just let the kids exam for example just as soon as they get off the school bus they're on the playstation they're on mm-hmm. doing that kind of stuff you know so yeah there, there's in in my in my view it's a little bit of that as well wouldn't you agree yeah parents i mean obviously have a huge responsibility um and again like my work now i, I focus on the child welfare system and foster care and it's like the same thing in juvenile justice a lot of those kids that you see you know getting into you know delinquent behaviors even something as simple as skipping school or even as serious as um you know murder um whatever it is it always typically comes back to the family unit and not having stability there so okay so uh, one thing, one thing I wanted wanted to talk to you a little bit aside from your skiing and that kind and that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, we, we'll talk. Uh, a- actually, let actually let me throw that question out to you right now. I mean, you've got you've got greenies coming up uh, next week, and you've you've got some other tournaments uh, coming up. Uh, g- give us an idea of where where you'll be going for those. Yeah, so I've got Greenies Tournament um, in Arkansas. It's just a three-round record tournament. I'm really excited for that. Um, I haven't actually jumped there in about 10 years, so everyone <laughs> seems to jump very very good there. So very excited for that opportunity. And then um, my next event after that will probably be the California Pro-Am um, out in California. We're really excited that they have added jump um, and women's jump at that. Um, you know, very excited to get out there. My whole... Um, mom's side of the family is from over there so i'll have a lot of family there cheering me on and and then after that we have a few more events we have the mastercraft pro am down at fluid um and then i think uh steve garcia's tournament king of darkness king of darkness toward uh, towards thanksgiving yeah okay uh i understand i understand that regina jaquist is on the list for women's jump at the world games but if she mm-hmm. isn't if, if she isn't ready for that could you potentially compete in that as a, a, a as a as a last minute addition? I don't know. Um, it's kind of still up in the air. I I don't know if they will add anyone that late. So we'll see. If I get the call, of course, I'll be willing to do that. I've I've never competed in a world game, so I'd love the opportunity. Certainly, certainly, it would. And, uh, and if you do get in, would there'll certainly be a a good strong supporting section behind you for that. Now. Uh, back to slightly more serious stuff a few uh, a few seasons ago uh, actually in actually i think as far back as 2019 uh there was 
there there was some stuff going on i won't go into the specifics that kind of uh, pre precipitated the need to actually have safe sport implemented uh for for every single competing official and skier and that kind of stuff i think you probably are, are know the post that you put up uh mm-hmm. in relation to a certain skier mm-hmm. uh uh, were you are you prepared to talk about that a little bit or uh, not so much? Um, a little bit. I you know I think what I wrote was public knowledge, so anyone can go and read it. It's still up there. It's still available, and it wasn't really to even um, you know necessarily point at or point fingers to a certain person. Everybody knows, uh, everyone has their opinions about that. It's really just to bring awareness, like I said. Like, we, we need the awareness there, and if we don't have it, things will go undetected. So that was really the main goal of that, or to encourage um, females, if they've ever felt uh, like they were victimized in any way, to come forward. So. And 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 I mean there are I mean there are other instances in other sports like Larry Nasser of course I mean being being the most notorious one and and in, in a lot of those instances uh, a good friend of ours uh, Michelle Teagle you know mm-hmm. uh, it g- g- goes in to defend uh, those victimized uh, female female athletes in those instances uh, how how do you feel about the work that she's done so far in 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 those instances. Yeah, she's great, and I know she had a big hand in, in when things came out in 2019 in our support um, to support, and she's just gone on to do excellent things. I really respect her and, and sort of her career that she's made for herself, and um, it's important work. Excellent stuff, excellent stuff. So uh, we're going to wrap up uh, the podcast. Uh, I, I know I know that you've got a lot of things on your plate, and uh, uh, not the least of which uh, is you're training on the water for the next tournament uh, coming up. But I'm going to give you this opportunity to uh, to acknowledge the uh, the people that have 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 been instrumental in your uh, in your career uh, in water skiing and and even in the work outside. So here you go. Thank you. Yeah, of course. First and foremost would be my parents and my my sister, my family, um, you know, their support means everything and I definitely wouldn't be here without them. And a role model like my dad who who both had a career outside of skiing and in skiing as well. So a huge role model to me. Um, the whole Travers family, Chris, John, Natty, Jack, Leilani, the whole team, um, and all of the, you know, um, homeowners there as well in the community there. We have a great um support system and they do so much for the sport Uh, but then you know specifically Chris I've skied with him um, for probably 20-ish years now so you know uh, always there to listen to me and um, deal with deal with me if you will Um, and then uh, more recently I have you know just all the people I've skied with throughout grad school I've lived in Seattle I've lived in St. Louis uh, Tennessee so all the people I've skied with across the board there the Goodmans Mark Lane um, John Carter Dave Crony um, and then you know more recently skiing with Ryan has really helped me as well so Excellent stuff. We wish you very uh, the very best of luck going forwards. That was Lauren Morgan, and this is Tony Lightfoot with the latest edition of the TWBC podcast. So until next time, it is ciao for now. Thank you for listening to the TWBC podcast. Be sure to check out our website at waterskibroadcasting.com. Links to our presence on major social media platforms can be found there, as well as updates to our webcast and this podcast. Duplication or rebroadcasting of this broadcast without written consent of TWBC is prohibited. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to join us next time for the next edition of the TWBC Podcast.